Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Flow Line. We have another special guest today, a gentleman who I'm excited to have on the show. Many of you have probably seen him on LinkedIn. He's been very active on there. My co-host and I, Matt Offenbacher, have Mr. Christian Grimes on the show today. Christian is a petroleum engineering student and a graduate student attending Colorado School of Mines, also an incoming engineer at Matador Resources out of Dallas. Christian, you're high speed, low drag, buddy. How's everything in your world today? Hey, man. Appreciate the introduction and thank you guys so much for having me. I've been listening to the flow line for a while, so it's it was pretty surreal when you guys asked me to come on. I really appreciate it. Things in my world are going smooth and it's kind of that slow fast that everybody always mentions. It's it's very a lot of stuff going on, but I'm trying to keep it as slow as possible. So <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, I mean, yeah, to enjoy it, right? Because so refresh my memory a little bit and tell the audience here, you're getting your master's right now. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Yeah, that's correct. I'm getting my MS in petroleum engineering here at Mines. Awesome. Congrats. Yeah, I, I was also going to ask you if that was a virtual background, but I don't think it is because you are at Colorado School of Mines right now. It's it looks not, like, man. And this isn't on YouTube, but, but for the listeners, he's got a beautiful background of a building, but some mountainous and some blue sky. And then what is that in the background? It's like a mound of something dirt. Yeah, so that's rock. Yeah, I had a hard decision today, man. On one side of us, I have South Table, which is kind of the picture for Mines. On the other side of us, I have Lookout Mountain that's blanketed with snow. So it was okay. most of my preparation for this was finding what you guys wanted to look at. So <laughs> Nice. Do you enjoy my washed out view of I-10? I'm a big fan <laughs> of it, you know? You're not missing anything. <laughs> right? Yeah. No, it's that's super cool. Well, Christian, again, I'm excited to have you on the show. I'd love to give a little context and just to tell everyone about your journey. I mean, kind of where you grew up and then what made you decide to get into petroleum engineering and then we'll take it from there. Yeah. So kind of to give you guys the spark notes, because I talk way too much and I could go on forever about it, but I'm from a small town in Texas, Milano, Texas, population of 390 something. So graduated the class 45, super small town, grew up in a blue collar oil field family. My dad and my granddad, both the only thing they've ever done is oil field. I'm a fourth generation oil and gas kind of in the industry and then first generation college student. So I joke with my dad and my granddad that they did it the hard way and I'm doing it the easy way. And obviously they feel the other way around, but you know, I didn't start in oil and gas. I came, I went to undergrad to run track actually, and started as an aerospace engineering major because my dad kind of didn't persuade me away from oil and gas, but cautioned me to it, cautioned me to be aware of it. You know, growing up, we saw the ups and downs and you guys obviously know how the market is. And so it was something that he was like, Hey, you know, you can do engineering, but if there's something that maybe you want to try out before just defaulting to oil and gas, maybe do that. That was reservoir engineering. And then through some twists and turns, ended up at Texas a Kingsville getting my natural gas engineering and geophysics degree before coming to mines. Nice. So as far as your athletics pass, we were talking about this a little bit before, but you were on track. So tell us a little about your events. Then I'm going to tell you what I know about these kind of athletes. <laughs> okay, <cool>. yeah. <laughs> Loaded. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? I came to Kingsville to pole vault. I was surrounded by a phenomenal, you know, group of people and pole vaulters and athletes much better than myself. I ran with multiple Olympians at the D2 level, which was great. I got suckered into running the mile relay a couple of times as well. 
I was definitely the slowest guy on the mile relay, but pole vaulting was kind of my niche. So, wow. How did you well, find out say, you were? Oh, go ahead, Justin. Mine was kind of a comical thing. How did you, how does one determine if they're a good pole vaulter? I mean, I guess you just kind of try it and see if you're good at it. But to me, that's something you have to try over time. Like, were you passionate about pole vaulting? No, yeah, you'll get a kick out of this. <laughs> so I started, I'm 5'11", right? So I'm not an physically imposing guy. I've always been relatively athletic, but not a super athlete by any means. And so when I was in middle school, I was a high jumper and I was a decent high jumper for a little kid. Right. And things were going swell. And then our school got rid of, I went to a very tiny school, graduated class 45. Our school got rid of our high jump pit. And then we had this dusty, rusty, you know, bag of dust pole vault pit over in the corner. (laughs) Our track coach, old gentleman, David Westbrook, but he was phenomenal coach. He was like, Hey, why don't you pole vault? And so I did. And I guess I accidentally ended up being good at it and I really enjoyed it, really loved it. And it's still to this day, one of like the biggest adrenaline things I've ever done. And, and it no way. paid for my education and carried me through that. So my dumb luck is the answer. <laughs> uh, I can see you flying through the air. <laughs> yeah. Appreciate it. I found a lot of, you know, pole vaulters. The one thing was, it was like, they're always like the most jacked guys on the team. Cause it was basically like, lift weights, get your upper body as huge as possible. Like you didn't have to be tall, which is a short guy. I was like, man, if I was actually like, you know, built a little better, maybe this is something I should have done. And the rest of it is like technique. So there's a lot of just figuring out how to get yourself up there. The other part is being strong enough. And then, you know, we were talking about earlier, you get like one event. So you just sort of like shake your legs a little bit, get out there, try and clear your height. And so there was something about pole vaulters where they seem to always get to be able to, at least in high school, like just hang out, talk to all the girls and then go to the weight room. And that was, <laughs> and then every once in a while they'd say, Hey, can you come to a leg on the four by four? So It's a tough job, man, but somebody has to do it. Yeah. Right? You know, I was running distance. So it was always like, Hey, go do a mile warm up for your two mile race and then you'll be <laughs> exhausted. Man, before we pivot into what we're supposed to talk about today, which I find this conversation is just as entertaining. What's your record? What's the highest you've been able to get to? Yeah. So the highest that I've ever jumped, like I said, I jumped with a lot of guys better than me, but was 1511. So never hit the 16 foot mark. I have two really good or three really good friends who I vaulted with in college. One, a national champion decathlete. One just got done competing at nationals and one who was a much better pole vaulter. But those guys were all jumped higher than me, but it's a lot of fun doing it regardless. No kidding. Very yeah. cool. That's a very tall height as well. It, Even it, in meters, it's very high. Yeah, it's 477, I think, or 478, 4 meters 78. So For our international audience. Yeah, for anybody yeah, anybody that's a big meters guy. Yeah, it, now it's really, I'm starting to connect the thoughts, guys. Thanks, Matt. I knew that was for me. <laughs> no, it's fascinating stuff, man. But so talk a little bit. I'm curious on the transition from aerospace, which I'm sure this whole balloon fiasco that we've seen recently has just got you just, you know, laughing your butt off. But yeah. so why go from aerospace to petrol or to natural gas rather? Yeah. I mean, firstly, just getting into aerospace, I really had no idea what I wanted to do. Okay. I was like, oh, I'll be, a, you know, I want to teach and coach. And then I was like, ah, I want to be an aerospace engineer because missiles and defense are really cool. I just figured out I was good at math and science. And I just like spun the dice or rolled the dice and spun the wheel. I'm like, what's the coolest thing I could do with this? And then it was always either oil and gas or aerospace. And then I realized I, you know, I wasn't really 
aerospace didn't really align with my personal goals and how I wanted to spend my life. You know, like I wanted to be able to go out in the field if I wanted to. I want. I didn't want to be confined to an office and oil and gas always interested me. So when it was time to kind of switch degrees and I was really comfortable with it, talked to my dad and my granddad, and then it was full go from there. So makes sense. And so talk a little bit about your experience. Now you, you got your natural, what was it? You said natural gas engineering? Natural gas engineering. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And so then you, you transitioned. And so during your time in natural gas engineering, and now at Colorado School of Mines getting your graduate, you've had some really interesting internships. I'm curious if you can just share your experience on the internships you've done and kind of some like real life, you know, projects and stuff like that. Because I always think that's really neat what students get exposed to, which oftentimes can be some sort of front of the line research projects or even operational things that folks are testing, whatever, you know, high level, of course, you know, I don't want you to divulge anything, but just share a little bit about that. I think it'd be cool. Yeah. So for sure, going to Texas A&M Kingsville, formerly Texas A&I, huge, you know, huge tradition that goes back a long way in oil and gas with the natural gas in South Texas at that university, but also not exactly a high profile engineering college, right? You know, it's not a Texas, it's not an A&M, it's not an Oklahoma, you know, what have you. So I kind of got really fortunate landing the internships I did before I got into grad school. One of those was actually working out in the field, working with a small operator out of Austin, CML Exploration. And so working out in the field with them, basically interning as a company man, more or less. That was one of the first things I did. It was a lot of fun. It taught me kind of really high level the ins and out of oil and gas when I was kind of coming into it. And I didn't really know necessarily what was going on besides what I'd heard from my dad and my granddad growing up. And so going out there and spending two weeks on, two weeks off, and then in the other two weeks off, working in the office in Austin with the engineers, doing that kind of developed my appreciation and my understanding for what goes on in the field. And that kind of led me to the drilling and completions or, or, you know, operations side of things where kind of the rest of my internships remained. The two other ones that I mainly did, one of them was with Axis, which is a completions company. At that time, they were actually a blossoming completions company. And so I got to help develop their core software with a couple of those engineers. And so basically their software to determine the speed in stick pipe at which you drill out plugs, more or less high level, depending on what kind of plug it is and depending on what kind of fluid you're using. And then basically building the, you know, dashboard to where operators can see what you're doing in real time from their office, which was at that time, one of the first things. Now it's pretty standard to have that. But that was a lot of fun. And then the most recent one I did with Matador was just an absolute blast, man. I worked as a drilling intern. And kind of as we mentioned before, Justin, on on your Wicked Energy podcast, a lot of that was spent working with solids control system and drilling fluids. And so that was kind of two weeks in the field, two weeks in the office, two weeks in the field, two weeks in the office. And then at a very high level, the gist of my project was revamping our solids control systems due to the high price of diesel. So changing the configuration changing whether, you know, what package we wanted to go to from a low package to a completely like top of the line package and how much basically we wanted to save our drilling fluid and how much that would cost to do so. And that for me was kind of my deep dive into the drilling and the fluids field. And it was something that I had an absolute blast doing. Cool. So Matt, you kind of mentioned something earlier about, you know, there's a different disciplines within oil and gas. I thought it was was rather interesting. Why don't you ask, So, I mean, we do a ton of student engagement. We'll be at Texas Tech next week. You know, we talk to all these students. We try and get them excited about drilling. And then you ask them, all right, what do you want to do? And all they ever want to do is study reservoir. And I'm painting a broad brush here, but I feel like they're missing out on a bit of an adventure. 
And so I wanted to know if Christian, you had any perspective on what is the draw? Where are these talented folks getting pulled that way from the classroom at least? Yeah, I don't know, man. So here at Mines, we're a huge res school. We have a couple of our professors, you know, Dr. Oscon and Dr. Cosme, who are like reservoir, low perm, low porosity pioneers in the field and who basically wrote the book on all that stuff. Yeah. And so I see the same thing here every day is that I'm a drilling guy and I feel like I'm the only drilling guy. I'm just kind of walking around and especially in the grad programs doing research and stuff. We also fortunately have the first ever like SB completions technical director here, Dr. Ms. Kimmons, the head of our department. And so she makes a real strong push for completions on the ops side. But besides for that, there's a couple of them, a lot of reservoir and then like one drilling guy and you're looking at him. And so I don't know if it's the comfort of being in the office all the time or if it's the, you know, there's a stigma and you know, correct or not, you guys and the audience listening can decide because it's a lot of industry people, but there's a stigma that most of the execs who go on to be in the upper level department of the company are, are res guys or finance guys or stuff like that. In my experience, working with the companies that I've worked with, I don't feel like that's the case. I feel like it's a pretty mixed batch and it depends on a lot of other external factors than that. But you do hear that a lot here at school, especially with the grad students, is that that's what they feel like. And they get to work in the office and stay in the office and they don't have to worry about going on a field rotation. And so I think it's just kind of looked at as a more comfortable life, but I think it's definitely a misnomer in that regard. So, Yeah, I feel like in some ways they're missing out on some adventure. In other ways, even when I worked offshore, I would just be really mad because they'd be like playing pool or something while I was waiting by the radio room. And it'd be like, wait a minute, do you just make sure the wells keep flowing? Like, <laughs> like no one's going to scream at you. Like, don't, don't we have to be doing something? Time is money. Anyways, no, I'm just, I'm always naturally curious about that, but I get the draw, but let's face it. You know, the drilling world's an adventure, never a dull moment. So yeah. Yeah. You get, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. oh I was going to say, it's like, there's nothing like getting a call at three in the morning, getting screamed at by a guy like Christian to figure out why you're <laughs> stuck. You know what I mean? Like who doesn't yeah. want that? Yeah. It's, it's the dream, man. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Sometimes you'll wake up worrying about it without even getting the call. <laughs> just having <laughs> exactly. like nightmares. <laughs> yeah. The drilling and, you know, just ops in general to me is, you know, sexy. It's a sexy part of the industry. It's exciting. It's thrilling. One of the things that I'm doing here at Mines is I'm a student ambassador with multiple other students for our petroleum engineering department. And that's kind of one of our hard drivers on why oil and gas is that, you know, and drilling kind of goes into that very heavily. And it's for me, that's a lot of my drivers, but you get to work maybe off, you know, in the North Sea, you may work off the coast of Africa, you may work in Malaysia, Argentina, all these other places, you know, and it is exciting and it's thrilling and it's a lot different than sitting in an office making simulations. And so yeah. it's yeah. everything's for themselves you know, everything's for everybody. But that's what I love so much about it. One of the things I've noticed over time is a lot of the folks that get into drilling. And again, I'm not again, painting a broad brush, but they are very competitive and are very much just very driven to like break records and just, you know, grind and grind and grind. They almost have this like addiction to just more and more and more and fast paced environments. And a lot of the folks that, you know, do well in drilling is just, they're cut from a different cloth and normally very edgy, <laughs> you know, they're yeah. kind of, you know, can be rough around the edges, not all, but again, I think regardless is it's important. And, you know, you mentioned you know, a lot of the folks in your class. I'm curious, Christian, over time, has School of Mines noticed either an upward trend or a downward trend in enrollment? And what's sort of your take on sort of the petroleum engineering discipline as it relates to gaining attraction amongst the younger generation? 
Yeah, I mean, awesome question and short answer, definitely, right? So we've noticed a decline in enrollment. It is nothing dissimilar to the rest of the, I guess, educational field, the Texas's, the A&M's, the Penn State's, they've also noticed one. I mentioned the student ambassador program earlier. And so that's one of the big things we're doing to combat that lack of enrollment or decline of enrollment, to phrase it better, is creating this ambassador program where we go out and we engage with alumni, we engage with prospective students, we go to high schools and talk to those students, you know, we try to flip first and second year undeclared students and say, hey, we know that your high school guidance counselor told you do mechanical because that's the engineering they knew and they didn't know anything else. But there's other things out there, right? And then getting your degree as a petroleum engineer doesn't confine you to be a petroleum engineer. Like here in the industry, we hope that you stay a petroleum engineer, but you could go work in, you know, the chemistry field, you could go work as a, if you're trained as a res engineer, you could go work in aerospace doing fluid simulations. You know, that's what res is. It's very heavy fluid based. And so like you have a lot of other skills that you pick up from being a petroleum engineer. And that's one of the things that we stress so hard to kind of rise that enrollment. It's something we're working on like really heavy right now. I think that's really important to remind people. I mean, petroleum, obviously, like there, there's a great need for them and it's a great avenue to experience and see some of that. And, you know, the other part is, I think, when I was in school, I assumed that whatever you picked your major was, you were like stuck. And one thing I learned is a ton of people, I got a degree as an electrical engineer, which has nothing to do with what I'm doing now. But one is just the versatility. But the other part is if you're studying, an enge- especially engineering, you know, when we had interview times, it was like banks and all kinds of like the industries you never even thought of. And you say, well, look, I don't, why are you here? And they'd say, we just need people that can solve problems. We don't really care like you've proven you can do that by getting an engineering degree and like, we'll take you the rest of the way. So you're not locked in, but some pretty cool doors are open when you get a petroleum engineering degree. So more power to you. I like emphasizing that just because I think some people like the only thing you can do with a petroleum engineering degree is work in the oil field. And if I decide I don't like it, like I'm on the street or something. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. Christian, do you know if they've had to change the curriculum at all over the last few years or, you know, has that changed much or are they kind of staying core to who they are and and what they've taught over the years? Or are you familiar? Yeah, no, I'm super familiar with that. So us here at Mines, yes, but mostly no. Other schools, I can't really say the same. I know there's a lot of stuff going around for petroleum engineering colleges and schools changing their names, you know, pushing for other directions to kind of advocate for a larger form of industry, which different strokes for different folks, like there's nothing wrong with that at all. But here at Mines, that's something, you know, our petroleum engineering heritage is something we're very, very proud of. And so we're going to stick to our guns as far as department name, but we are doing things to incorporate other types of energy courses into our like classes, right? So I took a data analytics class for my data analytics minor, and we were looking at building Python models and AI models and machine learning models for a company that just basically contracted us out a wind farm in Australia. And they were looking at where do they place their, where do they place their windmills and when do they turn them on to save, make the motors last as long as possible. So we do that, but we also have right now a huge geothermal push going on in our department. So we have a couple of professors here who are, have some DOE contracts for geothermal. We're partnering with Oxy to drill some deep, deep geothermal wells out here in Colorado. Super, super exciting, but we're giving electives towards those different types of industry or energy, but we're not pushing it in our main curriculum because kind of as Matt touched on, we still do believe that 
the most critical thing you can gain from an engineering degree and especially from mines is that ability to think critical and solve problems. Yeah. And we believe that as a petroleum engineer, you'll be just as well equipped, if not better than anybody else to move into those different forms of energy, if that's something you choose to do. Nice. No, I love that. And so I'm curious before we move on to our next topic here, but I'm curious from industry. And by that, I mean, companies like us, you know, in the oil and gas operators out there. I mean, what can we do as an industry to help attract the younger talent and people that are sort of considering it, but unsure, perhaps gathering information from sources that, you know, perhaps are not factual based. Let's just for lack of better terms. I mean, do you have any thoughts? I mean, are we doing a good job as industry to attract folks like yourself or are we completely missing the mark and we need to take a pivot in a hard direction? I think there's a large pivot that needs to be made as far as how industry recruits. You do see different companies doing it, right? So one of the things which not to like to my slash our own horn at Matador, but one of the things that they do is they reach out to the students that they've already hired and have them recruit a lot of the students that they think would succeed, right? They've done an exceptional job of pushing us like, hey, we know you know engineers. We know you can recruit engineers, but what about comp size? What about statisticians? You know, what about data science guys? Like all these other people who have such a large place in our industry, but they, I feel like oftentimes they get left behind because they're not petroleum engineers, but also recruiting younger students and giving them kind of an opportunity to shine because that undecided student who has done all of his prereqs and his basics, you know, you have him for a petroleum engineering internship and or a data science or something in a petroleum engineering facet and turns out he's really good at it. Now you've just flipped somebody to a petroleum engineer. And so now you've basically groomed a student to continue to, you know, work in that field. But again, one of the big things I think is going outside of the typical way they recruited, you know, the petroleum industry has always been very successful recruiting from the Texases, the mines, the Texas A&Ms, and just recruiting petroleum engineers. Because if you're Exxon or if you're Shell or if you're Baker, you know, all you have to do is set up a booth, toss it down, and you have a line of 560 students standing behind you, like clamoring with a pen. So that's pretty easy. That doesn't take talent as a recruiter. But when that line gets smaller and when people are like, oh, maybe I want to do aerospace, maybe I want to do computer science software. Okay, now you actually got to start recruiting. And that's the big difference is make yourself attractive. Yeah, yeah. You hit it on the head and it's how do we communicate to the younger generation and, and leverage you know, the folks that are interested is, is use their network. And I think too, is like getting into high schools and getting like educating folks at an early age, I think is is critical, you know, without them being, you know, taught or just, you know, getting in front of the people before they start making some decisions mm-hmm. that, you know, again, because educating for us as an industry is always something I think we've had a challenge with, but, you know, partially why we've started the flow line and, and you've noticed a bunch of other sort of content creators out there trying to educate and spread awareness. So, but again, I think it's, you know, folks like us are going to pass the baton over to guys like you. And and I mean, again, you do a great job on LinkedIn and educating and trying to just create awareness around certain topics, which I think is, again, it's, it's critical for us if we want to continue to attract talent. I want to switch gears just a little bit, but I want to give you an opportunity to to mention there's some cool events coming up. If you'd like to talk about that, I think would be great. Yeah. So so goes into recruiting students and hiring the best people you can in an industry that's, you know, fighting with enrollment, fighting with good talent. And so these kind of wrap right into it. One of the big things that we touched on is up here in Denver, you know, the AAD Rocky Mountain chapter. 
like, I, th- I think that's a big example of, you know, they recently sent out an email and notified everybody that due to a lack of interest and participation, they're like, they're closing the doors on the Rocky Mountain chapter. Anything crazy to stop that from happening, it just takes someone to step up. So the, if you look at kind of the butterfly effect of that, you close the doors on that chapter. And if per se, that closes the doors on our student chapter here at CSM, mm-hmm. then now you've lost the oldest you know, AAD chapter in the nation. And because of that, you're going to continue to lose students. You're going to continue to lose enrollment. And so what it takes is getting involved, in my opinion, what it takes is getting involved as companies to get involved with those students and, you know, make a concerted effort to show students that, hey, we're interested in, like, we're interested in growing this industry and we're interested in picking up the enrollment and picking up all of our work with students. And shameless plug, one way to do that is here at Mines, we're about to host at the end of April, our, you know, inaugural AADSB golf tournament. So that's a great way for companies to get involved and know students at, you know, a deeper than paper level, right? Deeper than the resume, deeper than LinkedIn and get to know like, hey, maybe this kid is smart or maybe this student has done these things on his resume, but hey, you know, you know what's better than that? They're a culture fit. Like they're pumped about the industry. They're great to work with. And it's someone that we can then use, as you talked about, Justin, to recruit other students, man. Yeah. Well, I think it'd be cool as like in a tournament like that or an upcoming event is is to like where each company that sponsors gets paired up with students. And so there's like two students, two industry professionals, and that's a way to kind of get to know people. And, you know, maybe the student invites someone who may not even be in oil and gas just to say, hey, come hang out with this oil and gas event. Again, I think there's ways out there that we just kind of have to think a little bit more creatively instead of just kind of the typical way we've always done things and not to say there's not room for it, but I, I think just getting a little bit more creative on how we involve community, not necessarily just industry professionals to, you know, do the same thing we always do, but appreciate you mentioning that, you know, Matt, are there any sort of questions or thoughts? I have one more, but you know, I feel like I've been kind of asking all the questions here. I don't want to take away from your opportunity because you always got some good ones. Well, so Christian has made his appearance on a number of social media platforms and You know, he networks himself well, and he was talking in a different podcast about just the value of networking and the things he's been successful as far as getting to know people, which I think both helps bring people into the industry, but within the industry helps, you know, just kind of know what to do next. And I'm a terrible networker. I don't, terrible might not be the right word, but I try to be nice to people, but I'm not intentional enough many times, but it sounds like Christian has gotten himself out there. And so I just want to for people who are more like me, Christian, if you had any advice on how you get the ball rolling, especially if you're a student or somebody new to the industry, because it can be a bit scary, but you don't know who's established you, you know, it's just, it's awkward coming up to people sometimes that you don't know. And you certainly don't know if you have anything in common. So do you have any tips on breaking the ice? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, similar to how you mentioned it's as a new grad or as a current student, it's definitely really I wouldn't say frightening, right? But people tend to be a little apprehensive when starting to network. And, you know, I know speaking to a lot of students here, they feel like they're bothering someone in the industry when they're looking to connect or they feel like they're, you know, getting in their hair or they're just like a young kid bothering this, you know, accomplished petroleum engineer, so on and so forth, right? And so I would say for those students and for those new in industry and even for anybody else really like just, it sounds silly, but 
go do it. You know, people want to connect with you. Young professionals and students especially are the industry's best weapon. So, you know, the longer that this industry continues and as it evolves and changes and as we're forced to adapt to, you know, whether it's like geopolitical climate or, or whatever it may be, young professionals and students are going to be the biggest part of that because they're the people that are going to be, you know, in y'all's shoes later on, or they're the people that are going to be hosting podcasts like this or leading companies. And so just assume that people want to network with you because more than likely they do. And that's one of the biggest things that I've found is when I go out of my way and say, hey, all right, okay. sorry, folks, we, we had a little bit of a technical difficulty. We are back. Christian had to go refill his coffee, I think, or something like that. But <laughs> anyway, we're talking about networking. And Christian, go ahead and wrap up your train of thought there. Yeah, so similar to what I was saying is that one of the biggest things when you're networking, especially as a student or a young professional, is I think oftentimes people make the mistake of just assuming they're bothering somebody or that you know someone's too busy to talk to them when in reality most of the time the people that you're trying to network with want to network with you back especially as a student and young professional again as that demographic and really as anybody like in the industry that we're in and the way it's evolving like we are the industry's biggest weapon especially those up and coming throughout the industry and at a certain point those young people are going to be leading the workforce or leading the industry And most of the seasoned vets in the industry, they know that they just want to help and they want to connect and they want to help grow the industry for the better. I would just add, you know, one of the most interesting things to me is I've always been sort of, I don't know if intimidated is the right word, but I get nervous around, oh, this person's too busy for me or they've got, you know, they're probably wheeling and dealing some big thing across the world and I'm interrupting them. I just go back to the first time I think I was ever called sir by somebody And I think I was about 15 years old as a lifeguard. And like, even now when somebody says, excuse me, sir, or, you know, pardon me. And they act really official. It's like, I don't remember they're talking to, I think they're talking to somebody else when they're they're addressing someone. And it's like, I think most people are happy to talk and they don't see themselves as some sort of position of stature compared to who you are, no matter who you are, where you came from, they're just normal people. And so no matter what you've built up in your head that this person's a vice president or a manager or a college graduate or whatever it is, they're generally pretty happy to talk and they, you probably have something in common or they want to hear from you because I learn a ton from talking to students. I'll say that much. I learn a lot of the assumptions I've made that are no longer true because they're true for me and they're not true now. So you bring a lot to the table and don't take that for granted. Yeah, I agree. And kind of how I mentioned is that one of the big things that I notice whenever I invite people as, you know, a representative of our chapter, when I invite people to speak or I invite people to do some kind of networking activity with our students is they jump on it, man. And they're excited for it. They want to come back and do it again. There's nothing that gets them jacked up more than coming and engaging with students, whether for recruitment purposes or just for the good of the industry purposes. And the amount of people that we have just reach out to us as our student chapters and say, hey, when can I come speak? Like, is there an opportunity for you guys to come? Mark Leroux at Social Octane is one of the biggest advocates for our chapters and schools and students across the country, I think, because he is always the first guy when we go to events with them to introduce us to people to say, hey, these are the students from Minds. And people were jacked up about it. Like they asked the same questions again, like, can you guys volunteer at this? Can we come speak at this? You know, what is it like being a student? How do you feel about entering the industry? Like just that is so, you know, heartwarming as a new grad and as a, you know, upcoming grad to see is that people want to network with you. So, I mean, take advantage of it. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. That's a huge point, man. And again, I think 
it takes folks like yourself to help lead the way and and just help build the community, especially around that young generation. Do you have any sort of unique or sort of good memories when it comes to networking? Like any specific events that happened that were somewhat of a, of a game changer or that changed a trajectory in the way you were either thinking about the industry or does any sort of thing come to mind? Yeah, more than me, I guess I have, a, or more than events, I have just people. And so, I mean, one of the ones for at least being at Mines was... ATC and NAEP both when we go to ATC and NAEP. When people see us as students, ATC is a pretty big student conference. Obviously, there's paper presentations and everything like that. So that's not super unusual to see students there. But when people see us as students at NAEP and not as energy management or land students, but as petroleum engineers who just want to come network and get involved with people and learn more about a different side of the industry, they're excited. And they're the first people to invite us like, hey, come to this happy hour, come to this, you know, after party or come network here and there. Same thing with last spring, we had the Rockies home opener put on by Social Octane. And we took a group of like 12 students there or 15 students and volunteered work in the door. And in exchange, we got to go around and network with people when our shift was done working the door. Awesome. Like that's exciting. A couple of people like JP Warren with Connection Crew, he hosted an event for us here in Denver in the fall where we got to network with a lot of really influential people in the industry. We got a lot of lunch and learns from that business cards. People just saying, hey, you know, when you graduate in May, if you don't have somewhere you already plan on going, shoot me your resume and, you know, shoot me a call. And if I don't have something for you, somebody will because this industry needs people. Yeah. No, that's one thing when I talk to folks that are in industry and, and ones that, you know, had gotten laid off and are ha- even having a hard time come back to the in- industry since the pandemic. A lot of people don't say, oh, I wish I would have got more education or, oh, I wish I would have got more certificates. The one regret that a lot of people talk about is A, they didn't do a good enough job networking during college, which actually is, I was talking to a gentleman that is a school of mines graduate in petroleum engineering. He said he was there to kind of get his degree and he didn't attend a lot of the networking events and things. And now there's people in positions of authority that he graduated with that now he's like years after he's like, I wish I would have stayed in touch with those guys. Cause now they're folks I'm calling on. And, you know, it's just, it, you know, and so going back to it is it's like the hard skills are somewhat commoditized, but it's the relationships and those other things that really they're the intangibles that are so valuable, not only for your own career, but then to also, to also build on others' careers and, and help people, gain opportunities in different places. So I'm really glad we touched on that. Christian, this has been an amazing conversation. I hope a lot of the listeners found some value in it. And hopefully some younger listeners got you know a chance to get you know some similar perspective as themselves hearing from someone like you. I would say you're already a leader in the space. And you know, if anyone out there is interested, Christian, what's the best way for folks out there that if they want to connect with you, where can folks connect with you on which platform or how can people do that? Yeah. I mean, I obviously have LinkedIn and then I have Facebook, but I would say if someone, if anybody out there that's listening, you know, whether it be a new student who wants, you know, advice on entering the industry, a soon to graduate student who wants advice on networking or, you know, a young professional who probably obviously as myself, still a student is probably further along with me, but just wants, you know, someone to talk to or just to connect, shoot me a message on LinkedIn, connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm super liberal giving out my phone number and my email as well. So it's like, just feel free if you want anything to just hit me up and I would love to help or just, you know, make a new connection and a friend, however I possibly can. Awesome. Matt, you got any closing questions or last words for Christian or the audience? No, just really appreciative that you'd spend some time with us, Christian. It sounds like you've got an exciting career. How do you, mine's kids, I say kids, but like 
whenever I, I know we're meeting with people who went to mines, I know I've got to be prepared. You know, really talented, lots of really talented people come from there. It sounds like you're another one of them. And I think it's fantastic that you're so willing to support the industry and reach out early on. So thank you again for your time. Yeah, man, I really appreciate you guys having me. Like I said, I've been an avid listener in the flow line. So it's pretty awesome to be on here. And then I, you know, I hope I can provide some value as well. So great. Well, AES and, and the rest of our team here is always willing to help you, mines, the whole industry. And so if you ever need anything from us, let me know. And for the listeners out there, please review, subscribe, share this episode with somebody if you could. That would mean a lot to us. And if you have any questions or thoughts for a topic on a show, whether it's drilling or fluids related, again, those are some of the best episodes we have is from folks like yourself asking really good questions. You know, we've covered a lot of topics over the years, but there's always something to learn, always something to discuss. If you'd like to reach out on LinkedIn, Matt and I are both very active on there. Please make sure that you follow our AES Fluids page. Our team does a great job of putting out good technical content. Lots to learn from there as well. We've got a YouTube page with some tech tips on there as well. Really good visual aids to give you an idea of, of how and what we do sometimes. And with that said, if you want, to, you can send us an email at the Flowline Podcast at aesfluids.com. Again, really appreciate everyone's support. Spring is around the corner. Hope everyone's looking forward to some nice weather. And with that said, be safe, everyone. Thanks again. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of the Flowline. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.